Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in, come in out of the spring, the rain, the wind, the dark, the drear. Isn't it lovely? And of course, it is not. I am joking. But welcome to the District of Wonders, to Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and welcome to the Nook. And that's it, yes. Strip your gear, find a chum, grab some treats dip a beverage, warm or cold, and snuggle. Two things before we ease into the evening's entertainments. Tales to Terrify began as a spin-off from the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa. And this, our wretched hive of scum and villainy, became the first of the neighborhoods in what is now the four-hooded District of Wonders. Soon after we came along, there burgeoned that den of mystery and mayhem, Crime City Central. Then came the jumping-off place for high adventure, gun malls, and invisible agents, protecting Project Pulp. Well, as A.A. A. Mill might have said, now we are five, or rather, soon we will be five. Have a listen. J.R.R. Tolkien once said, A single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. In that spirit, the District of Wonders brings you many more dreams in the form of stories. A new fantasy podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, will be launching soon. Fantastic fabulisms from writers like Gene Wolfe, A.A. Atanasio, Jenny Wirtz, and many more. Stay tuned to the Starship Sofa for details.
Yes, it is a tease. But we hope it whets your appetite. And for news of when far-fetched fables will spring into being, I'm sure you'll be able to listen here in the nook, as well as in the starship sofa or the other neighborhoods of the District of Wonders. Then we will be five, and the district will have a place to keep its dragons and elves and cobbles and the like. Oh, excellent. More anon. Thing two. New art. There it is. On the wall. You see it? Hmm? Disturbing, yes, yes. If you can't see it from where you're sitting, take a look on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com when you get home. This month's art is called Screamer, and it's by Swedish pop surrealist Mia Makila. Not wanting to feel limited, Mia says she's constantly fluctuating between styles, genres, and techniques. I work in many mediums, she says with digital art in Photoshop, photography, acrylics on panel, mixed media, and drawings. She calls her digital art imagery paintings, since she uses high-resolution images to make collages in Photoshop, for which she uses a secret, self-taught technique which ends up allowing her to paint with images rather than paint. Mia cites a lot of artistic influences in her art, but says they change all the time. She adds that she does love the art of Gregory Jacobson, Mark Ryden, Marion Peck, Hieronymus Bosch, Cindy Sherman, Alex Prager, Marnie Weber, Aaron Alfre, and the artists of the Disney Studios. Yes, she's a filmaholic. And Mia also draws inspiration from movies and film directors such as David Lynch, Ingmar Bergman, Tim Burton, Alfred Hitchcock, and from television shows such as Lost, Six Feet Under, and, she says, of course, Twin Peaks. As with so many of us who work in the realms of horror, Mia says she loves the juxtaposition of the ugly with the beautiful, the swing between darkness and light. She uses these, as she says, quote, to deal with my traumas and heartaches in a fun way. That's the driving force in my art, and that's how you survive even in the darkest of times. I hope you'll take a look at Screamer and that you'll stop by Mia's webpage, which is on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Tales to terrify.com and on our Facebook page. For further contact, you can scoot over to her Facebook page and like her. I like her and her work. And if you are in the New York area, specifically Brooklyn, you can see some of Mia's work in the inaugural exhibit Welcome to the Dream Time at Stephen Romano's new space at 111 Front Street, Suite 208. Brooklyn. That opened just last night. I have some brief poetry this evening. If you recall, over the last two weeks, we heard Algernon Blackwood's tale, The Wendigo. It created quite a stir among listeners, one of whom mentioned a short poem also called The Wendigo, 
So needless to say, I burrowed about the pipes and tubes of the Internet machine and came up with the following. It's by American poet Ogden Nash, and here, just for fun and fond memories, is The Wendigo by Ogden Nash. The Wendigo, the Wendigo, its eyes are ice and indigo, its blood is rank and yellowish, its voice is hoarse and bellowish, its tentacles are slithery and scummy, slimy, leathery, its lips are hungry, blubbery, and smacky, sucky, rubbery. The Wendigo, the Wendigo, I saw it just a friend ago. Last night it lurked in Canada, tonight on your veranda. As you're lolling hammock-wise, it contemplates you stomach-wise. You loll, it contemplates, it lollops. The rest is merely gulps and gollops. Well, that covers that. I like Ogden Nash. I always have, uh, since childhood, I guess. I always like writers who have no compunctions about fabricating a good word when none in the language will do. And he does that so well. And no one uses rhyme quite like Nash, and to such effect. Why, every time I see Mahler's lovely sister, the indescribable Miss Tabitha, I think of her sweet kidhood and am reminded of Nash's couplet. The trouble with a kitten is that, eventually, it becomes a cat. Sorry, Tabitha. And now, we are for fiction. For quite some time, Ms. Nicole Doolin has narrated tales here in the Nook, I first heard Nicole on LibriVox and decided very quickly that she was a voice actor we must have here at Tales to Terrify. Luckily, she agreed, and there was no need to have someone from Crime City or Project Pulp go kidnap her, but seriously, her voice is distinctive, memorable, and she always brings something special to stories that she tells us. As it turns out... Nicole is also a writer, a writer of fiction, of poetry, and of plays. Her work has appeared in the Wilderness House Literary Review, 3 AM Magazine, 365 Tomorrows, Flash Shot, and the literary anthology Wilderness House Literary Review, the best of Volume 3. In addition, her stage plays have been presented here, there, and in festivals. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at NicoleDoolin.com, and I will spell that out for you on our homepage and on the Facebook page. So, without further fuss, here is, well, I'll let her announce herself. The Reunion, written and narrated by Nicole Doolan. There he was again, the man with eyes like smoldering coals in a brazier. He was standing across the street from her brownstone watching her. It made her shiver. 
The first time that Maddox encountered him was when she walked home alone through the park. She heard heavy footsteps behind her and began to worry. When she turned around sharply, he froze like a statue directly under the glow of a park lamp. She observed that he was a tall, broad-shouldered man who was muscular and much bigger than she was. Maddox estimated that he was a little younger than her, probably in his early thirties. He was clean-shaven with a neat appearance, but there was a kind of calculated ferocity in his manner, which made her feel ill at ease. He stared at her with purpose, as if he expected something from her. When she fled, he did not pursue her. He later appeared at no particular schedule. Day or night, he was near. When he wasn't, she wondered if he was just hidden from sight. Several days later, Maddox met Neil outside their usual café, Sand Stalker. He was drinking an espresso and reading the paper. He rose to greet her with a kiss on both cheeks before she sat down. Then he caught the waiter's eye and mined the order for another espresso. Neil was impeccably dressed as always. He was wearing a gray suit with subtle pinstripes, a light blue shirt and a dark blue tie, with a carefully positioned handkerchief in the breast pocket. He kept his short hair well coiffed and dyed to make him look younger than his forty-four years. His nails were professionally manicured. His watch was expensive, and he filled the air around him with a European cologne, which was practically unpronounceable. There was a time when she would have felt the need to one-up him, but those competitive days were long gone. She came straight from work wearing a black pantsuit with sensible shoes. She was being stalked, after all, and the blue neck scarf that Neil gave her last week. She put her chestnut hair up and allowed some wisp to hang down in the front, even if they did get stuck to her lipstick now and then. In a matter-of-fact tone, Neil asked, Have you recognized him yet? Maddox shook her head. No, not yet, but I'm starting to feel as though I should. Neil studied her face and then noticed a piece of lint on the arm of her blazer. He reached over the table and plucked it away. She looked annoyed. He was always doing that. Then he tugged at the neck scarf and grinned from ear to ear. You'll have to call the police to get a file started, he advised. She furrowed her brow. They won't do much. He hasn't done much. He took a sip of espresso. They could question him at the very least, and hopefully bring him in for an eval. Either way, these things have to get in the system. You have to start an official paper trail so that you have documentation, just in case. He's an unknown quantity, my dear. Maddox said nothing. She was picturing the man lit up under that lamp and those burning eyes. Eyes like that mean business. The hairs on the back of her neck began to rise, and goosebumps formed on the length of her slender arms. She was startled when the waiter placed an espresso in front of her. Neil arched his brow. Once the waiter left, he looked around and leaned in toward Maddox. He kept his voice low. What did you do to him? Her face contorted in surprise and then anger. The paleness of her complexion competed with the reddened hue of her cheeks. I have no idea. I told you I don't remember him. He smiled wryly and then fell back into his seat. Not yet, he said. Maddox clenched her jaw and surveyed her surroundings. There was no sign of him, but that didn't mean he wasn't there. After their tete-a-tete, Maddox and Neil went to Sheila's place. Years ago, they reunited at one of Sheila's get-togethers. She was always collecting people and had a knack for reuniting prior acquaintances. She also reveled in helping people heal old wounds, so she made it her life's purpose as a therapist. To a fault sometimes. 
The apartment was filled with the scent of sage incense, which burned in a sand-filled orb on an antique side table. There were various religious and spiritual artifacts scattered about the place, such as mandalas, crucifixes, crystals, and you name it. The atmosphere was congenial and the jazz music unobtrusive. There were a few friendly faces and some new ones, which Maddox didn't recognize, much to her relief. Neil brought her a martini and held onto a G&T. Maddox took a sip of her drink and made a sour expression. Is this gin? she asked. He sipped from her glass while she held it aloft. Smirking, he teased. How did that get in there? Not funny, Neil. Sheila emerged from the kitchen and approached them with a huge grin. There was a hint of crow's feet whenever she smiled, which was often. She was an energetic and handsome woman in her late forties, with long raven hair. She wore an emerald green sari, sandals, and charm bracelets that jingled whenever she moved her arms. Sheila kissed her on the cheek and then hugged her for several seconds longer than Maddox felt necessary. She smelled of lavender as usual. Apparently it helped to relax people. Unfortunately, its effects were lost on Maddox. She clenched her jaw and her pulse quickened. She tried not to feel uneasy whenever Sheila touched her, but she couldn't help it, despite Sheila's best efforts to help her work through it. I haven't seen you for ages. How are you? Sheila asked. She's being stalked, interjected Neil. Sheila was lighthearted. Again? Maddox, what did you do this time? Or is it one I already know about? Maddox flashed an angry look at Neil. He ignored her and continued to gossip. She says she can't remember. Really? Oh, come on, you two. Give me a break. Do I feel an intervention coming on? Asked Sheila, thrilled. Maddox's face fell. Neil began to rub Maddox's back gently. Sheila caught her expression and bit her lip. Uh, of course that's only if you want one, and only if you need one. Maybe it's not what we think, although not everyone remembers right away, and some don't remember at all. Lucky them, Maddox sighed. Well, I always remember once I make contact with a prior, said Neil, and then winked at Maddox. Did he say anything to you? asked Sheila. We haven't spoken, he just follows me and watches me. Sheila crinkled her forehead. And you didn't ask him what he wanted? I didn't see the point. Sheila turned sober. Maddox, it's important that you face these meetings openly and honestly. No matter what they might reveal, he may need your help. He may need a lot of help, Neil added. Well, you won't know until you engage him. Last week, I ran into a woman I stole money from, her entire life savings in point of fact. I was a bit of a gigolo then. I was mortified to face her, but I couldn't avoid it. Do you know what she did? She bought me a drink and we reminisced about old times. We had a lot of fun. We're even planning a trip to Milan this fall, the scene of the crime. Neither Maddox nor Neil could resist the urge to chuckle. You have much better luck than I do, Sheila. Even I didn't lose it when we reunited. No, I don't think Mr. Mysterious wants to buy me a drink and invite me on a trip. Speaking slowly into her ear, Neil commanded, Call the police. Actually, I haven't seen him for almost a week. That doesn't mean he can't see you. I'm aware of that.
I just hope I don't read about you on the front page one morning. Sheila hit Neil's arm with the back of her hand and her bracelet rattled. That's awful, Neil. She turned to Maddox. Call an agency, find out who this guy is. At least identify him for the record. I want to avoid all records. I've been through this too many times and I really don't want to end up back at the CPG. Sheila sighed. Well, it's up to you, but you should consider it. I know, just in case, said Maddox. An hour later, Neil escorted Maddox home. It was a glorious spring night, so they walked most of the way arm in arm. Neil mused, I sometimes think I preferred Sheila as a drunken priest who used to pass out during Mass and laugh her ass off at our confessions. Too bad I missed that one. When I first met her, she pressed a hot iron into my thigh and, after an excessively long period of torture, had me disemboweled. If it's any consolation, she vomited on me when she was giving me the Eucharist. Dreadful, I admit, but I still would have traded that psycho Inquisition Cardinal for fun-drunk Father What's-His-Face. Father Thomas, may he rest in peace. Neil made the sign of the cross. Well, rest in Sheila, at any rate. The two laughed. Counting on his fingers, Neil pondered, Let's see, she's been a monk, a cardinal, and a parish priest. There's a joke in there somewhere. I think the joke was on us, Maddox said. Neil chuckled. And now she's a dedicated therapist helping people adjust, even though she still gives me the creeps. And we've been thugs several times. What does that say about us? Neil asked with a smirk. I don't know, but we're a far cry from shaking down poor slobs and running booze. You know, I believe that's why you hate gin so much. As opposed to the fact that you drowned me in a bathtub full of the stuff? That was an accident. You were drunk. Maddox looked askance at Neil. Darling, I remember you holding my legs. I was trying to help you out. You misunderstood. Got me out of the way. No more sixty-forty. True, but it didn't last long. Pat Doyle put a slug in my head two weeks later. Served you right. They walked in silence for a few moments until Maddox spoke again. Her tone turned serious. When I saw you the next time, I wanted to kill you with my bare hands. Well, Vinnie Bruschelli did. I wasn't Milos, the timid baker, anymore. I was Vinnie and you were Franco, even if you were a nice old lady. It blew my mind. I couldn't reconcile the two identities. If they hadn't stopped me. But they did, and we got through it. Yeah, two lifetimes later, Maddox added. Even in this one, I didn't trust you for a long time. Understandable. Neil stopped Maddox gently. Maddox, you do remember, don't you? A glass bottle smashed on the pavement somewhere in the shadows. Strong hands pulled Neil away from Maddox and threw him down. Maddox gasped and tried to run, but the man grabbed her by the throat and pushed her up against an SUV parked on the street. Look at me, damn you, Sean O'Malley, look at me. His breath smelled of liquor and he was covered in sweat. Maddox stared in horror into the man's eyes. She saw those eyes burning before, but now they looked different. Another man's eyes stared at her, pitiful eyes welling with tears from long ago and far away. Do you remember me now, O'Malley? Maddox nodded as hot tears began to run down her own cheeks. I've been waiting for you, O'Malley. I've been waiting a long time to meet you again.
Let her go, a voice commanded behind him. The man sneered as he turned around to face Franco Spinelli. Maddox knew that whenever Neil used a tough guy voice, he was channeling Franco. He was pretty good at letting the old identity surface just enough to be useful but not troublesome. She could do it too sometimes, but she had to be careful not to lose herself in them. This is between O'Malley and me, piss off, the man growled. Nobody hits Franco Spinelli and walks away, capiche? Neil as Franco dodged a right hook thrown by the stranger and then followed up with a punch to the gut. The man took it well. He was built for a brawl. Neil worked out and played sports, but he had to rely on the street smarts of Franco to handle a character like this. It didn't take long for Vinnie Bruschelli to show up and join his old pal from the neighborhood. Maddox was petite compared to the quarterback, but she let Vinnie apply some of his tricks. It was like old times. Moments later, a patrol car spotted them and stopped. Lights began to flash around them, then the siren erupted and heightened the chaos of the scene. By the time the cops got close, Maddox realized that the man had fled. She and Neil were standing bloody and panting as the police demanded they put their hands up at gunpoint. That was like old times, too, for Vinnie and Franco. Once the police were satisfied with their statements, they released them. Stories about vengeful people from past lives were commonplace. Of course, that meant that Maddox had no choice but to file a report against the brute with smoldering eyes, because he was more than a nuisance, he was a danger. Maddox was sick of this. What was the point of remembering? People couldn't live their current lives anymore without the past ones interfering left and right. As they exited the station, Neil said, grinning, That brought back some memories. Bruschelli and Spinelli are still in good form. You're enjoying yourself too much. He got away. Eh, that, what did you say his name was? Sighing, Maddox replied, McPherson, he used to be Michael McPherson. That McPherson won't stay hidden forever. They've got a lead on him. He's out there, Neil, and he's angry. Maddox clenched her jaw. Neil put his arms around Maddox. I think I should stay at your place, in case McPherson turns up. Maddox rolled her eyes. You know, your crush on Vinny is unnerving. Besides, you're not his type. Neil released her. Worth a shot. Maddox smiled wanely before getting into a cab. Even though she was worried, she needed to be alone. Now that McPherson was back, so were the memories. It felt like rain and Maddox could smell wet earth. There was mud beneath her boots and she was holding a knife. She was a man, a laborer, not educated. There was another man cowering before her. Blood was running from his nose. She had hit him. He was whimpering and pleading for his life. He was educated, but he was puny in stature. She felt powerful. He had everything in the world that she wanted. Why wasn't it hers? Take it, the man begged. It was a purse full of money, all the money he had in the world. Yes, she'll take it. She'll take everything. She grabbed the purse from him and stuffed it inside her shirt. The poor wretch thought this would free him. She decided that it wouldn't. She couldn't leave him alive to set the law on her. She told him to get up and he obeyed, fearful but hopeful. She grinned and realized that she was missing a tooth. The man waited for a command. She stabbed him three times for good measure and he fell onto the mud face down. She killed him. There were no witnesses as far as she could see on that dark night in the pouring rain. 
on that lonely road in County Cork. When Maddox opened her eyes the next day, she felt guilty and ashamed. Sean O'Malley wasn't one of her finest incarnations. He was a drunkard, a thief, a cheat, and a murderer. McPherson had every right to hate her, even though she wasn't Sean O'Malley anymore. According to the law, however, he did not have the right to exact revenge, nor could she be charged with a crime because past life actions were not prosecutable, or she'd be in prison already. Despite her aches and wretched appearance, she applied as much makeup as she could to hide the bruising on her face, put that scarf around her neck, and finished with dark sunglasses and a floppy-brimmed hat. It would have to suffice. Maddox needed to see the only soul alive who could remedy what ailed her. When she reached the stables, he was eating oats. He whinnied a little when he saw her. That's my Clovis. Always greets me right, she thought. Mr. O'Brien doesn't like it when she calls him Clovis, but he doesn't argue about it. He's called Billy now, but he still answers to Clovis just the same. Maddox reunited with him while he was pulling a carriage full of tours through the city. She was waiting to hail a cab, and he just stopped right in front of her and neighed loudly as he moved his head wildly to get her attention. She was bewildered and even a little afraid of the strange brown horse with a white stripe running down its face. Finally, she looked into his mesmerizing brown eyes and knew instantly that it was Clovis. Tears streamed down her cheeks and she wept audibly while she threw her arms around his neck, and he calmed down. Mr. O'Brien's wizened face reddened. He took off his hat and revealed a thick head of white hair. Then he began to swear at both Clovis and Maddox. The tourist abandoned the ride and refused to pay. Maddox didn't care that it cost her their fare. She even rode back to the stables with Mr. O'Brien, who read her the riot act since it appeared that Clovis refused to go without her. Then she stayed with Clovis until it was very late, and he was settled enough to leave. Mr. O'Brien lets her visit Clovis as much as she likes when he isn't working. It's kind of him, but he knows it soothes the horse. It calms her, too, and brings back all the warm feelings of the past. He was the best dog she ever had in all her lives, the most loyal and smartest. She loved that dog more than anything, more than the wife to whom she hardly said a word and barely acknowledged. That woman resented Clovis deeply and was cruel to him out of spite. Finally, she got fed up, gathered her things, told her she was sick of living with a simple-minded mute, and went away to spend the rest of her life with her widowed sister. Maddox couldn't say she blamed her for it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
but she did miss her cooking, and still does, quite frankly. She used to make the most delicious apple strudel, which made her mouth water at the scent of it. That's a prior she's never run into again. Not that she minded. She doubted she'd have anything to say to her now if she did. As Maddox nuzzled with Clovis, a funny idea struck her. She imagined saddling him up and riding as far away as he could carry her. Of course, that was a ridiculous idea. It'd be found in no time, and there's nowhere to hide in today's world, not like it used to be. Several days later, Michael McPherson, now known as Gary West, was picked up and held in custody. He revealed himself in a drunken tirade at a pub. At first, the police thought his current name was McPherson, until they found his license. She received the news from the authorities with mixed feelings. She would likely have to appear at the court of prior grievance at some point, and air more of her dirty laundry for the public record. It all depended on what this Gary West wanted to achieve, or whether he was in a sound mental state. Maddox was exhausted by all this. What the man truly wanted was retribution in the time the events occurred. That was impossible, of course, but she knew what it felt like when a prior consciousness woke up. Dueling identities struggled to inhabit the same space, and the desire for revenge can be as fresh as if the wound had just been inflicted. The wound could be anything from adultery to theft to murder. The list was endless. Yes, she killed Michael McPherson without cause, and some part of her felt that she should pay for it, but it was Sean O'Malley who did the deed. Three months later, Maddox wasn't surprised when she returned to the court of prior grievance. This was her third visit. On the first occasion, she was called to face the charge of rape. On the second occasion, she was accused of participating in the slaughter and pillage of a small village during a Viking raid. She was one of several symbolic defendants after she and they had been discovered separately by a rather vigilant victim who was taken by them and later sold as a slave. The description of her former activities was surprisingly accurate, right down to the detail of the gash from an axe in her fur shield and the gold booty she procured. Her exploits on that raid raised her standing in the community. She recalled feeling great satisfaction at the time. However, she was disturbed by the obsessive catalogue of events that the man carried around in his mind. It was the sort of thing that kept her in a mental facility for years when she was Milos the meek baker, who one day attacked a poor old lady for no apparent reason. That was when everyone started to remember, but before it was an officially recognized phenomenon. People from the distant past were waking up inside new bodies, alongside new identities. The world had to face it and deal with it. Even if it was a case of mass hysteria, as many believed, it wasn't going away. New laws had to be designed to handle these new complications. Allowances had to be made up to a point, because everyone was in the same boat. No one wanted to serve prison sentences or be executed for the crimes of their former selves. Victims needed justice, but they too were victimizers on other occasions. Thus was born the court of prior grievance, and whether she liked it or not, it was better than actually being tried for her past sins. Although some idiotic lawmakers were actually pushing legislation to criminalize certain past life acts, but luckily wiser heads prevailed, at least for now. Maddox wondered if there was a perverse deity orchestrating this madness, or if it was some weird accident of nature. If their so-called souls were energy, and energy couldn't be destroyed, did that mean they were stuck in a loop for eternity in this theater of the absurd? Much to her consternation, the Viking case garnered a great deal of publicity, 
and the testimony was sought after by historians who loved to fill in the blanks whenever events of historical import emerged. She became quite visible for a time, and that's how she reunited with Sheila, who said she recognized her immediately from the news. She felt it necessary to meet with Maddox to apologize to her for all the atrocious acts that she committed against her, and she urged her to bring a suit against her at the CPG for symbolic healing. That was the last thing Maddox wanted to do. It was bad enough to be associated with the heinous acts that she perpetrated. She didn't need to be the victim and dredge up all those memories. Moreover, she worried that further exposure would bring a slew of suits against her. After being sworn in, Maddox studied the courtroom to distract herself. It was a grand old space of polished, dark mahogany wood and murals on the walls of scenes such as Justice holding the scales. She and West were seated in separate witness stands, which faced the judge but were twelve feet apart. The judge's bench was mounted high like an altar of righteousness. He even wore a wig. It seemed fitting. If they were discussing matters of old events, they might as well be ceremonious about it and play their parts. It was all drama here. Judge Garrison was a distinguished older gentleman who spoke with eloquence. His face was sallow and he had sharp features and piercing eyes. She had come before him previously, but luckily he didn't mention that. He was a seasoned veteran of the bench and she rather admired him. Coincidentally, he's been a judge several times, so he's had a lot of practice. The judge began, I will remind all parties that this court does not prosecute for past life crimes. It is a tool used solely to air the grievances of certain injured parties who suffered what they consider to be wrongs perpetrated by certain other parties. It is meant as a symbolic forum to heal old wounds and to allow the participants to move forward in their current incarnations. It is also meant to assist in determining whether any further medical or legal remedies are necessary for current actions influenced by these past events. He turned toward West. Are you, Gary West, formerly known as Michael McPherson, the injured party? Gary West rose. I am, Your Honor. In this statement, you claim that the soul of one Caroline Maddox, while in the lifetime of Sean O'Malley, stole money from you and murdered you without just cause. Is that the whole of your grievance, Mr. West? Sounding agitated, West added, and I later found out from my brother Thomas, in my next life, that he married my girl Bridget and that she bore him three children who should have been mine. Maddox clenched her jaw and squeezed the arms of her chair. Beads of sweat formed on her upper lip. She imagined beautiful, bright Bridget singing and dancing about their old cottage, filling her former identity with delight and hunger. That is not a crime, Mr. West, even if it is distasteful, but it will reflect the whole of the loss that you suffered. West continued, That's not all. According to Thomas, that monster over there, drunk as always, beat Bridget so bad that she was blinded in one eye. Maddox felt nauseous. The memories of Sean O'Malley kept rising to the front of her mind. He beat his wife and children frequently. He was a monster. Mr. West, while such behavior is objectionable, it is up to Bridget O'Malley to bring forth a grievance on the matters that directly impacted her. I haven't found her, Your Honor, he said softly as tears fell down his cheeks. The tears of Michael McPherson, not Gary West. I've been looking for her for a long time, but I never seem to find her. She may not wish to be found, Mr. West. 
MacPherson looked confused by the judge's simple logic. Maddox certainly wished he hadn't found her. He obviously couldn't let it go. She hoped the authorities would keep him under lock and key for a long while. The judge scrutinized Maddox. Do you deny that you were at one time known as Sean O'Malley and that you were acquainted with the victim? Maddox rose to her feet and felt lightheaded. She held onto the wood railing in front of her to steady her. No, sir, I do not. Do you deny the charges as presented by Mr. West? Maddox looked sideways at MacPherson. No, Your Honor. Do you have a counter-grievance to add to the record? She shook her head. No. West shouted. Of course not. What did I ever do to you, O'Malley? Nothing. All I did was live and breathe. The bailiff, a larger man than Gary West, moved closer to him. The judge tapped his gavel. Control yourself, Mr. West. She was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. She agreed to be my wife because I wasn't a lousy wastrel like you, O'Malley. You couldn't stand that, though, could you? You couldn't stand that I was smarter than you and had prospects. I could keep a wife right and proper and not break every bone in her small body. Look at you now. You're not much bigger than she was. What if I did to you what you did to her? In all my lives, I've never met her like again. Never. His eyes were a pair of puddles. MacPherson dominated West's mind. She wondered how young he was when MacPherson woke up, and if Gary West ever had a chance to be himself. West grew sober and scowled at Maddox. You took everything from me. Someday you're gonna pay O'Malley, and not in some fake court where they pretend justice was served with fake decrees. The judge's gavel echoed loudly in her mind. Maddox's chest tightened and she wiped sweat from her face with her hand. It felt close in that room even though the ceiling was vaulted. She took a sip of water from the glass that was placed before her at the start of the session. Judge Garrison cautioned, Mr. West, I assure you that any threats you make in this court can be used against you now and in future. It therefore behooves you to calm yourself and remember where you are now. While you have suffered in the past and this court is designed to help you resolve those past ills, you still have an obligation to comport yourself as a law-abiding citizen. Do I make myself clear, Mr. West? Gary West nodded his head. The judge stated, Note for the record that the plaintiff has nodded his assent. The judge drew a deep breath. The court has researched the existence of both former parties and found that they did in fact exist. As there is no evidence to contradict that you each were the parties in question, and as you have sworn under oath that you were these individuals, the court will offer a symbolic ruling. The court finds one Sean O'Malley guilty of theft and the murder of Michael McPherson on September 15th in the year 1815 in the jurisdiction of County Cork, Ireland. Had the authorities known at the time of the incident, it is likely that Sean O'Malley would have hung for the crime. However, as this crime was committed during a past-life incarnation, the statute of limitations has clearly run out. Caroline Maddox cannot be held responsible for the actions that were undertaken by her former identity, Sean O'Malley. It was he and he alone who committed the crimes. Looking sharply at West, the judge continued, Take this ruling, Mr. West, however symbolic, 
and that it put an end to your desire for vengeance. Recognize that we have all erred in one manner or another, but that we each have the opportunity to change for the better. That said, let us move on from the past and address the current matters. Mr. West, you stalked and then physically assaulted Ms. Maddox and her companion. It is recognized by this court that you were under the influence of your former identity, and since Ms. Maddox and her companion have decided not to press charges against you, you will not be prosecuted for these acts. However, based on the manner of your testimony today, this court orders that you be returned to the mental facility at which you have been held and continue adjustment therapy for a term of six further months, at which time your status will be reviewed. Bailiff, escort Mr. West from the court. As the bailiff took West by the arm, he shouted, This is an over-O'Malley. Maddox felt like she was going to be sick. As soon as she could leave, she bolted from the courtroom and ran into the nearest restroom. In the weeks that followed, Maddox struggled to resume her life. She tried to suppress the memories of Sean O'Malley and his hideous list of wrongdoings. McPherson wasn't the only person O'Malley killed. To add insult to injury, she received a request for a visit with Gary West at the facility where he was being treated. Such requests were actually polite demands. She would have to see him again and, worst of all, talk to him. Maddox cringed when she entered the facility, which stank of disinfectant. Her experience as Milos left an indelible impression upon her. If it hadn't been for the persistence of Neil, she would have died in a place like this. He was the one who helped her regain some semblance of sanity. Yet Maddox wasn't up for such a task. She couldn't see herself ministering to the likes of Gary West. She never cared about him. Even though Franco betrayed Vinny, he did love him. Maddox followed the orderly down a long gray hallway into a small gray room. A woman in a white coat, who looked to be in her early thirties, was sitting at a large rectangular table. She rose to her feet and presented her hand to Maddox. I'm Dr. Atkinson. You're here today at my request. Please have a seat. Maddox sat down. She could still smell the disinfectant. Dr. Atkinson said, I know that this may be unpleasant for you, Ms. Maddox. I've seen the video of your appearance at the CPG, and I've had numerous discussions with Mr. West. It may seem impossible, but I believe we can help Mr. West overcome his issues. You may not wish to meet with him, but we have concrete evidence that when you reconcile in the current life, it carries over into the next. Maddox rolled her eyes and said, This isn't my first rodeo, Doctor. Can we just get this over with? Dr. Atkinson looked offended and then signaled to the orderly. Seconds later, he returned to the room with Gary West and led him to a chair directly opposite Maddox. The orderly might be able to stop him, but there was only a table between them. Maddox noticed that his hair was unkempt and he was rough-shaven. His eyes seemed dull this time, and she realized that he was medicated. Not that drugs guaranteed cooperation. He sat and said nothing. He didn't even look at her. Dr. Atkinson said, Gary, Ms. Maddox has been kind enough to come here today to help you work through your issues. I think you should thank her for it. Maddox snickered, although it felt more like it came from someone else inside her. Dr. Atkinson looked aghast. McPherson looked pissed. She knew drugs wouldn't keep him hidden for long. Come out to play, McPherson. Get it out of your lousy system, she thought. Thank you for putting me in here, he sneered. 
You put yourself in here. Did I, O'Malley? Dr. Atkinson looked back and forth between them. I think, Ms. Maddox, you should explain to Carrie why you did what you did when you were Sean. The urge to guffaw was so strong that Maddox had to dig her nails into the palm of her hand. Dr. Atkinson was out of her depth. McPherson wasn't ready to get cozy with his murderer. This charade was premature. Before Maddox could say anything, McPherson asked, Do you remember your children? Of course. Do you ever miss them? Maddox hesitated. Sometimes. Funny. They weren't even mine, but I missed them all the time. Maybe because they weren't mine. Thomas said that they looked more like Bridget than you. Is that why you beat them? Just like you beat her? The face of Bridget materialized in her mind. All the light extinguished from it. Dr. Atkinson tried to interrupt. Gary, maybe... Maddox cut her off. O'Malley beat them because he was a piece of shit who loved nothing and no one. He killed you because he wanted to, and he could because you were weak. There's nothing I can say here today or any day that is ever going to fix it. Yes, I killed you. I stole from you. I took your woman and ruined the life you dreamed about. How can I possibly make that up to you? You can't. And that is why you will be in here for a very long time, Maddox concluded. A pregnant silence hung in the air as the two scowled at one another. Dr. Atkinson broke the silence. We'll leave this for today and pick it up another time. Maddox stood up and glared at Dr. Atkinson with daggers in her eyes. West asked calmly, Are you sorry? She clenched her jaw and swallowed hard. I'm always sorry, she whispered and then left the room. Maddox stormed out of the facility and disappeared into the nearest subway station. Instead of going home, she went to see Clovis. He was the only relief she could find right now. The world was too small a place when priors lurked around every corner. At least that's how it seemed. Why did they have to remember? When Maddox entered the stables, she noticed a crowd gathered around one of the stalls. She carefully navigated her way through and caught sight of Mr. O'Brien. He appeared crestfallen with his hat in his hand. His face was ashen and his hair was a mess. He was staring downward into the stall. Two men flanked him on either side to hold him up. Maddox was struck by fear. She walked forward slowly. Her body began to tremble. When she finally could see into the stall for herself, she fell to her knees and a torrent of tears streamed down her face. A terrible cry escaped her lungs. Clovis was lying down on his left side with his eyes frozen open and foam coming out of his mouth. He was dead. Her beloved friend was gone. Mr. O'Brien placed his hand on her shoulder and spoke with a broken voice. You found him again in this life. You may find him in the next. Maybe we both will. He began to weep. Would she find him again? Would she be that lucky? What if this life was the last time that she would ever be with him? She watched as some men came and put a tarp over his lifeless body. Poor Clovis. He didn't deserve this. He shouldn't have had to pay for what she did. There were no witnesses to the poisoning, but somehow McPherson managed to get someone to do it for him. Either he paid someone or he called in a favor. She couldn't directly link him to the crime, so it wouldn't be worth filing a complaint against him. He had it all figured out. 
he had an official alibi. The men who helped Mr. O'Brien got her into a cab. She sat in the back seat in a trance. Her cell rang, but she didn't even look to see who was calling. Nothing else mattered to her. When she walked up the steps to her floor on the brownstone, she noticed a package waiting for her in front of her door. She almost ignored it, but there was a familiar aroma emanating from it. She took it inside her apartment and opened it up in a mechanical manner. There was a plastic container and a note inside. She opened the container first and discovered strudel. Apfelstrudel. For a moment, as she inhaled the fragrance, she felt nothing but contentment. She yearned to eat the treasure before her, but she opened the note. It read, Dear Ernst, I still remember the recipe. Hetty. P.S. I always hated that wretched dog. The note slipped from her fingers, her head throbbed. The room spun round and it all went dark. The next morning, Maddox woke up on the floor. Her back ached and her neck was full of cramps. It took her more than a minute before she could manage to right herself. A nauseating scent of apple strudel was in the air while the pastry itself was near her on the floor. The memories of yesterday flooded into her mind. She pictured Clovis dead, foam spewing from his mouth, and imagined Hetty snarling at her with a basket full of strudel. She grabbed the plastic dish and threw it in the trash. Then she wrenched the bag out of the container and hurried with it outside where she dumped it in a barrel. Maddox hesitated before going back inside. She looked up and down the street. It felt as if there was no escape, but she couldn't stay there. She had to get away. An hour later, Maddox was driving a rental car upstate to a place where they let small cottages near a lake. She retreated there after the Viking trial. It wasn't anything special, but it was secluded and cheap. She pulled into a rest stop three hours into the drive. The food on offering was the typical junk, but she wasn't feeling picky. Maddox grabbed a burger and a nice tea and took her meal outside, where there were some picnic tables in a wooded area next to the parking lot. While she ate, a text came through on her phone from Neil. It read, Where are you? She didn't respond. Maddox surveyed her surroundings and noted gray clouds forming overhead. She wanted to get back on the road to beat the rain, so she finished her burger and took a drink with her. As she walked through the lot, she noticed a man in his thirties secure a kayak in the back of a pickup truck parked next to her car. He was wearing a t-shirt and jeans and dark sunglasses. His arm muscles flexed as he tightened the rope. By the looks of his physique, it was obvious that he worked out or worked hard. He brushed back his dark blonde hair, which fell to about mid-neck. It was the kind of hair that invited fingers to run through its strands. Maddox pressed the remote on her keychain and the beeping made the man glance in her direction. He smiled at her. She observed that his lips were neither too full nor too thin, and then realized that he had a dimple in his chin. Where are you headed? he asked. The tenor of his voice was pleasing to her ears. Without thinking, Maddox blurted out, Wildwood Cottages. I know the place. It has great lake access. He tapped on his kayak. Maybe I'll see you around. Maddox blushed. Maybe, she said, and then got into her car. Less than two hours later, she reached the cottages and got her key from the lodge house. There weren't many people renting after Labor Day. She was glad of it. Her cottage was nestled in a dense wooded area, which made her feel sheltered. Though the cottage itself was cramped, it had all the necessities for cooking and bathing and sleeping. The next day, Maddox was greeted by a clear blue sky. 
To her relief, she realized that she had the lake all to herself. She took a look inside the amenity shed and discovered a kayak. She smiled and decided to take it out. When she reached the center of the lake, she put up her paddle and rested a while. She absorbed the peace and beauty surrounding her, and finally relaxed for the first time in a long time. Nature always had a restorative effect upon her. Fifteen minutes later, she noticed another kayak come out from behind a small island, which was thick with trees and shrubs. It was captained by a man with dark blonde hair and sunglasses. Her heart began to pound. Something stirred within her, a mixture of desire and fear. Her skin prickled. He waved his paddle in the air and yelled, Morning! Then he navigated his craft swiftly toward her and halted within two feet of her kayak. We meet again, he said with a beaming smile. What a coincidence. It's a pretty big lake. Not too big for me, but then I'm used to it. What are you up to? he asked. Just taking it easy. Well, if you don't mind some company, we could paddle down to the other end of the lake. There's a great place to eat near the shore. Maddox estimated that it would take them about an hour to get there. That's quite a distance, she observed. Far enough to work up an appetite. Maddox scrutinized the man. There was a pronounced tingling sensation at the back of her neck. I don't know. I think I've had too much sun. He dipped his paddle in the water and pulled it once so that his kayak glided into hers with a slight bump. He was right beside her. Maddox's chest rose and fell more quickly. She looked around and began to regret the isolation she sought. Maybe she could beat him to the shore, but those muscular arms of his filled her with doubt. He reached inside his cockpit and fished around for something. She considered hitting him with a paddle. Suddenly he produced a khaki-colored hat with a large brim. He wrapped his left hand around the edge of her cockpit to steady himself and placed the hat on her head with his right. There, that should do it, he said. Then he pushed his shades up on top of his head and presented her with his hand. I'm Chris, by the way. Maddox was puzzled, but she took his hand. Caroline, she said. His grip was neither too firm nor too soft. She liked the feel of it. She studied his face. His radiant smile warmed her. We better get started, he said. We're burning daylight. He paddled onward at a leisurely pace and began to sing an old tune. Maddox followed her acquaintance in a kind of reverie. She wondered how long it would take for Bridget O'Malley to wake up. Then Maddox hoped that she never would. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you, Nicole. If you would like to hear more of her, Nicole Doolin narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey, as well as the aforementioned LibriVox. And if you are not familiar with that resource, I urge you to amend your ways and stop by LibriVox. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X. It's Project Gutenberg for the Ear. Since joining us here in the Nook, Nicole has also visited the Crime City Central neighborhood 
and the No Sleep podcast. You can also dig through the dust of the Tales to Terrify archives and find, oh, a half dozen or more renderings by her, including a rather wonderful Algernon Blackwood tale, The Woman's Ghost Story. And that, children of the night, will be that. I would have you be upstanding. I think it's still raining out there, so bundle up. But before you self-wrap for the dash home, I would have you check the mirror. Make sure you are who you think you are, who you were when you arrived, and who you were when you were just a child, or who you were long before. Ah, well... Yes. If you came with a friend, by the way, make sure he or she is who you think as well. Then, when you arrive in the dry dark of home and hearth, and look at Screamer over at TalesToTerrify.com, there will be no questions, and you'll be able to turn your thoughts to bed, to the future, and to pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. At their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.